Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. Well, earlier this week I got to the church and there was a letter for me in the mail and I opened it up and it was a letter and a check which is, if you're a pastor, this is just a great way to start your morning, okay? Um, the letter was addressed to me, the check was addressed to the church, so there was some, some you know, it wasn't totally lined up for me. Um, and it was a very interesting experience for me. Um, so uh, we're in the middle of a sermon series on generosity. We're talking about generosity. Uh, we've got a couple more weeks to go this week and next week, and then we'll be in Advent already. Uh, in 2020, we'll be here soon, so we'll have an Advent Sermon series. Um, and the letter came, and it was from a former student. And so um, the church, if, for some of you who've been here for a while, has changed a lot and gone through different kind of iterations. We've got a lot of little ones now. Um, not too long ago, you know, six, five years ago, we had a lot of high schoolers. Um, I'm not talking about myself. I was in college. But on a given Sunday, we might have like 10, 10 high schoolers, 15 high schoolers, and it was a really cool time if you were there for that, and God was doing some really cool stuff in and through them. And uh, the letter was from one of them, uh, and uh, it come in the mail with a short note and a check, um, and I wanted to read it to you this morning. It was very convicting and interesting to me. It, it just reads like this. To the church family that shaped me and helped cultivate my faith as I search for a new church family in my new town with love, student's name. And immediately I was like, oh no, this kid is outshining me, right? I don't know if this is ever your reaction to seeing someone do something like great as conviction. Sometimes that's what happens for me. I'm like really grateful, really proud of this student. And then also like, that's not my impulse naturally. That's not my impulse naturally is to necessarily always go out of my way to express gratitude. It's not my impulse naturally to share very generously um, the gift that was given. Um, and I think it says a lot both about our church and about the calling that we have as Christians. Um, it's a weird thing that churches exist. Sometimes, sometimes it's so normalized to us that we have a hard time understanding that there's a whole like form of organization inside of our government just here in America, nonprofits and religious nonprofits, and they exist. Some like ours are pretty small, so there's not too much involved, but some are multi-million, sometimes billion-dollar kind of machines, nonprofit corporations, and people all around the country and all around the world, indeed, work very hard for their money. And then there's this thing that happens where they take out a checkbook, or they go online, and they give that money to a church. They express generosity. And I want to explore why that impulse might be, what, what I'm so proud of with this student. You know, with this student in particular, I can guarantee you there was never a lesson or a Bible study that we sat through where the topic came up that when you get your first big person job, which is how my lovely wife described it, I was like, maybe, maybe just job. She got her first job. You get your first big person job that you would think back to the church family that meant so much to you and say, how can I bless them? How can I, how can I bless them financially? Because it's that type of generosity, it's that just impulse inside of someone's heart that I think 
is what I would want to be after, what I would want our church to be after as we study generosity and as we grow towards being perhaps more generous people, individuals, a community able to bless one another and bless the world even more than we do already. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6, toward the end of the New Testament, if you're in a black hardback underneath the seat around you, you're more than welcome to grab one of those and flip there with us. It'll be on page 994. We've been in the same passage for the whole series two weeks now, and we'll use it as our jumping uh, spot this morning as well. It is, I think, one of the more explicit passages in terms of letting us know as Christians what we're called to do and be as generous people. And so far, we've done two weeks of a generosity sermon without actually talking about money or money being given to the church. We've laid some groundwork, and there's more in this passage I want to tease out this morning as we continue to think and talk about this. First Timothy chapter 6, we'll pick it up in verse 17. If you've been with us for these few weeks, this passage maybe is starting to get etched in your brain a little bit, a little familiar to you. That's a good thing. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And so the very first week of the sermon series, we simply talked about God's character and nature, that he is in himself a generous God, and that any generosity on our part, any call to generosity on our part, would simply be reflecting who God is. And that is, at its heart, kind of what worship is. You become what you worship. You emulate what you worship. And if we really understand just how generous God is, here described, richly providing us with everything to enjoy, that's going to start to play itself out in our own lives, and our own attitudes. Verse 18 is where we get the real explicit command. They are to do good. To be rich, not just in money, though, to be rich in good works, in deeds and acts of righteousness. To be generous and ready to share. I like the ready there because it indicates like you're on the lookout, right? You're looking for that opportunity. You've got tools, and then you're looking for where you can use them. This is the command given to us. Verse 19, thus storing up treasure for themselves is a foundation for the future, so they may take hold of that which is truly life. And, and so last time, uh, two weeks ago, last sermon in the, the sermon series, we talked about this treasure language, this desire language, this life language. And we said it indicates that there's more at play for the command to be generous than simply external actions. Um, there's something that has to do with our hearts and with where we're trying to seek life. Um, it's centered in the kingdom of God and putting our treasures in the kingdom of God. And, and when we start there, we'll be able to kind of, in a more healthy way, find our path when it comes to being generous. But now the time has come. Let's do it. Let's get a little dirty. It might feel a little uncomfortable to you. It feels more uncomfortable to me. Let's talk about it. Do good. Do good works. Be generous. He's talking to rich Christians. And what he's saying here is, in part, you have been given money, and that money should be given to others. This is part of the call of generosity. Notice that generosity, though, is not limited to money. Generosity can include things like your time, can include things like your skills or talents, serving in various ways. It may or may not be helpful to break it up into like financial generosity and 
and otherwise other kinds of generosity, but, but it's kind of all included with all that we have and all that we've been given. We've been called to be generous. And the, the question, the nuts and bolts really forces, well then, how do we do that? What do we do that? What gets us there? What is it that we can sit back at the end of the day and say, okay, check. We did that. We were generous. Here's what I've found. So I've been pastoring our church for a little over a decade and had not too much church experience before that. And so it's a, I'm a weird, I'm kind of an outsider to the church in a weird way that you can be if you've pastored for a decade. And, and when you pastor somewhere, you don't get a whole lot of experience elsewhere either, right? And so like occasionally I'll hear stories about things that other churches do or things that will happen or get said there, um, but I don't have too much experience with it. Oftentimes I'm like, there are real human beings who really do things like that in churches. Sometimes churches can be very toxic places and very unhealthy places. And, and a couple things have been expressed to me over and over and over again to the point where I'm pr- fairly confident these are true reports that I'm hearing. The first is that Many people get the impression at many churches, even here in our town with pastors from friends with, churches that I like, that the church is set up and one of their primary functions is to be set up in such a way as to receive your money. And it's something that's mentioned quite a bit. It's something that's talked about. It's something that is really capitalized on. If we were to bring in a church consultant to our church, I can guarantee you they would say, I don't talk about money enough. I don't ask people to give enough. I don't tell people to give more enough. I've never drawn like a cute thermometer, okay, and said like, I'll color in red when we get closer up here. And then the other thing that I hear and read and see is that when people think about generosity, Christians, particularly in our culture, have been so conditioned that it immediately goes to one word and one concept. And it's almost like a weird, dirty word. Do you know the word tithe? We've kind of reduced all of generosity down to tithe. Someone even, I don't know who made these, it was me, but put the word tithe on these envelopes, right? That's just how we understand this. I've argued before that one of the reasons we have to understand the heart behind generosity is because you can do external things and still not have your heart in the right place, right? Like, I could say you need to give $500 a week, and you could give $500 a week, but still not be treasuring the right things, like we're told to treasure. Well, when people talk about generosity, it usually comes down to this tithe. And again, I had very little experience with this growing up in the church, but was kind of aware of it, and am aware of it that it's still taught quite a bit, and there's a pretty specific way it's taught and formatted. And what I want to do this morning, which I do fairly often here, is argue to you that it's just a uh, complete, complete mess of an idea. That it, we've been wrongly sold an idea, and before you get too comfortable, it, it might turn on you a little bit at a certain point. But I want to suggest that the idea that Christians are called to tithe as their way of being generous to the church, as their checkmark to see whether they're fulfilling this command that we have in Scripture, is not the best way forward for us. If you're unfamiliar with the tithe, it comes from the Old Testament, and the way it gets presented now is it's 10%, 10% of your income. Now, I don't know exactly what your finances look like or how you interact with those finances and how you give to the church. 10% is a, quite a bit of money. And if you're really going 
by the way this is taught and the way it's presented in the Old Testament. This is 10% of your gross income. No cute games with like payroll deductions or taxes. This is the salary on, on your contract. This is what you see put into your bank. 10%. And what's equally interesting to me is, depending on where you look and who you read, the numbers change a little bit, but not much. The average American who tithes regularly tithes 1% to 3% of their income. So nowhere close to 10%, right? Uh, 10% is, the point I'm trying to get at is it's highlighted a whole lot. It doesn't seem people are really doing it too much. If they were, it would be amazing. I mean, so they'll tell tell church planners, right? If you want a certain budget, think of how many families you need to tie 10% of the average salary in that area. And then those church planners come to me, and they're like, what's it like being a pastor? And I'm like, it's not like that. (laughs) That's not, I know the math works on paper, but that's not how you're going to get to your budget. That's just life is a little bit messier than that. Um, you take the average salary around you and it just, it's not set up that way. Even when you teach it, even if you teach it with maybe some fear tactics or manipulation tactics or shame tactics, it just doesn't quite seem to work. People get uncomfortable. People can be harmed by this. We've had many people, one of the things I love about our church, it seems to kind of be a place where people can come and kind of recover from bad experiences elsewhere, kind of fall back in love with the church, uh, have some safety and space to kind of grow back into um, a healthy relationship with the church community. And one of the things I hear over and over again is it's this money thing. That was always really an issue. They were always really, really, really after my money, and it, I, I just never quite square it away. The 10% comes from the Old Testament. It was part of a tax that was given by God on the people of Israel. Now, you've got to remember the people of Israel are not necessarily the exact same thing as you and I as the church. This was a nation group. And so there's kind of more of a government structure than just the way you and I would be structured um, today. And the 10% was actually only one-third of the tax for the Israelites. It wasn't the whole thing. The 10% went to the Levitical priesthood and to the temple and sacrificial system. Now, here's why I think that 10% tithe does not apply to you and I and is a bad approach on a couple different levels when it comes for you and I trying to kind of unpack this idea of generosity. The first is that I am not a Levitical priest. I can't claim to be part of that tradition. That tax has no direct real correlation to anything that I do in my life. The temple sacrificial system is no longer around. This is, again, is not something that you can contribute money to right now, at least by writing a check to our church. It's part of an old covenant that God had with the people of Israel. And there are indications throughout the New Testament that maybe things have changed because of Jesus and the new covenant. Hebrews 8 will say the fact that there is a new covenant indicates that the old is obsolete, or at least portions of it are obsolete. The new covenant is, is all about um, transformation on the inside. It's less about external rules and laws and more about inner transformation and healing and wholeness. The spirit, we're told, in the new covenant is going to take that law that was outside of you and put it inside of you. And now you won't be trying to measure something that's outside of you that you may or may not be able to reach 
Now you'll have something growing inside of you, coming out organically, naturally, and joyfully, and beautifully. This is the new covenant. And some things have changed. And I would argue this is one of the things that have changed. So nowhere in the New Testament, which talks about money quite a bit and talks about giving, does it mention a tithe or this 10% or really any kind of percentage. You would think that this would be referred to if it was one of these things that the early Christians thought was still a principle that should be carried over. This still should be in effect. And again, by saying this, I'm not even saying that 10% is a bad number. 10% may or may not be a great benchmark for Christians when they consider giving, whether that's to the church or to other various nonprofit organizations. What I am saying is I don't think you can point to the Old Testament and say you have some kind of external rule that you need to conform to. There's a moving passage in Malachi chapter 3 that a lot of preachers get a lot of emotional miles out of where it talks about giving the first 10% of what you have. Back then, it's most likely crops... In the first century, coins, now dollars. And it, it says if you don't tithe, or if you don't give that first 10% to God, it, it compares it to like stealing from God. Which is a really emotional, powerful statement, convicting, challenging question. Right? You're not shortcoming. You're not just playing like a cute financial game or cutting some corners. It's an act of thievery. It's a crime committed against God himself. This 10% that you're not offering up. I want to suggest, though, that 10%, while it may be a good number, it might be a good number to shoot for, is not something prescribed externally for us for many, many, many reasons, um, most of which is because we just see much different things at play in the New Testament. Instead, I want to point out this morning three principles of generosity that can guide us in thinking about how we should be giving to the church, how we should be giving to people around us, how we should be giving to other organizations, how we should be trying to live out this generosity. So today we're going to kind of do like a 30,000-foot approach towards generosity, and we'll finish up the sermon series next week by doing a little bit more on-the-ground individual. Like, what questions could I ask myself when it comes to my budget or when it comes to how I use my time or the gifts that I may have been given or not given, those type of things. So flip with me, if you will, to 2 Corinthians. This is the passage we'll camp out in for the rest of our time this morning. 2 Corinthians... The Apostle Paul was somewhat of a fundraiser. And it was no small part of his ministry to collect money and distribute money. And in 2 Corinthians, we get the most explicit and most direct and most extended instructions from Paul about giving. And I think there we'll be able to to tease out three principles that will help us go forward uh, as we um, work to be more faithful and following this command to be generous people, ready to share, ready to do good works. So here's the general context you need before we jump in. We won't be able to read both chapters, although it's not too long, you could read it on your own, but we'll read a couple chunks together. The general background here is the Apostle Paul is raising money from Gentile churches to give it to the Jerusalem church. So the Apostle Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, and there's some tension at times between Jewish Christians in the first century and Gentile Christians, and some tensions between the Jerusalem church and Peter and the Gentile churches and the Apostle Paul. And at this time in history, most historians think you've got a severe problem happening in Jerusalem. There's a lot of poverty, and that there are actually probably physically people starving to death, most likely 
Christians would be a part of this subgroup. So you have extreme poverty. There's a need in this Jerusalem church. And we know Paul makes a big deal about collecting what he wants to be a very impressive sum of money from the churches he's planted to deliver to the Jerusalem church. And not only will it be an act of kindness in meeting a need, but it does seem for Paul to be a kind of validation of his ministry, kind of a larger expression of the unity of the Gentile and Jewish church, of the Spirit working its way out in the Gentiles as Gentiles, not becoming Jewish Christians. Let's see what he says directly about giving here. We want you to know, brothers, chapter 8, verse 1, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. This is most likely the church of Philippi, perhaps a couple other churches. Paul, very interestingly, is going to use this word grace to talk about money. He's talking about the collection here. Grace in Greek is a very common word for gift. We want you to know about the gift of God that came from these churches in Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So he starts this appeal for the Corinthians to give their money by bragging about these other churches. Right? And he says they were in a tough spot, extreme poverty, and they really stepped up. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. We know this. The church in Corinth had already started collecting this money. The way it was working was that the, the first day of every week, they were collecting resources. And we know that Paul was concerned that they would be ready to give this gift by the time he arrived. He was sending people in advance to make sure that this was still happening, it was happening right, and it would be completed and ready. Paul, the Apostle Paul, engages in different financial relationships with different communities. So we know at times he accepts support from churches in order to plant churches and to be a pastor, to be an apostle, to preach and teach. And around scriptures in 1 Timothy chapter 5, it says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. The scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. We also know, though, that in some situations, Paul said, I'm not letting you pay me money. For cultural reasons, he seemed to sense this was going to cause problems. If you know anything about the Corinthians, you can read 1 Corinthians and know that this was a church with a lot of problems. And Paul seems to not want to get too directly involved in their financial situation, most likely because this ancient world was a system of patronage. You had benefactors, you had patrons, and Paul wants the Corinthians and others to actually see him as their patron. He's bringing the faith to them. He doesn't want to feel like he owes them anything, particularly a community that can be unhealthy and have rivalries and get things misprioritized, things of that nature. So this has been happening. Paul's writing to make sure it's still happening, get them ready for it. They have urged Titus to complete this act of grace. Again, this word grace, the act of grace. What is this? It's a pretty normal. It's, it's putting the coins in a bag. But act of grace. And then verse 7, But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you exceed in this act of grace also. Notice this exceed language. And notice 
the way that giving financially is associated with these other things we don't normally perhaps associate it with. We know as Christians, we are called to exceed towards certain things. We're called to pursue them, to do our best, to excel and mature in them. In faith, he says, you and I are called to grow in our faith. You and I are called to grow in our speech, to exceed, to excel in our speech, in our knowledge, in our love. And then in the same breath, Paul lists also this act of grace, the sharing of your finances, the act of generosity. He says, I say this not as a command, verse 8, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Here he gives an example of God's generosity for us to follow. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. This is interesting. The church in Macedonia, he bragged. He said they gave not only according to their means, but beyond their means. One principle we can take from this is that for Christians to live out the command to be generous, they're going to have to live below their means. And this is a difficult problem for many of us in the culture and society that we're in. For personal reasons, decisions we've made, and again, just the general ethos of our atmosphere, we live in a world that is plagued and in a sense almost built off of a financial system of interest and debt. And there are many Christian gurus out there and talking heads and some Christian financial gurus out there and talking heads and some good and some bad. But I think it not only sounds financial advice, but also true spiritual advice that if you're hampered in debt, you're not going to be as able to be ready to share. And this is not necessarily a value statement, right? I mean, some people are, are, are overwhelmed with student debt or medical debt, right? This, this doesn't just have to be consumer debt like you win and pour just a bunch of new Porsches on the credit cards you got. But either way, for a Christian, it would seem not only are we called to not live at our means, we're actually called to live below our means because we're, we're going to be giving back. We're being blessed to be a, a blessing. Is this true even for the church? Years ago, we had a mortgage that we were still paying off. And six, seven years ago, we were able to pay that mortgage off. And if you were here, I, I lit a piece of paper on fire, and the fire marshal almost came, and we almost cashed in on an insurance check too. <laughs> but different things are possible. when you I mean, a budget meeting is different. Board meetings are different when there's not a mortgage on the line item. So... He brags about the churches in Macedonia, but he doesn't say here to the Corinthians, you have to give more than you have. He says, no, whatever you have got, what makes sense for you to share, share. And he tells us in verse 13, for I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time will supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. I'm going to read that again, just so you can catch the vision Paul's painting here. I don't mean that Others should be eased and new burden. The point of this generosity is not that they would be poor and not have enough, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time would supply for the need of someone without abundance, so that their abundance at some future time may supply for your need. And then he quotes from the book of Exodus, 
when the Israelites were gathering manna, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, whoever gathered little had no lack. I asked this question two weeks ago. The rich young ruler who walks away sad from Jesus, when Jesus tells him if you want to inherit eternal life, sell all your possessions and give it to the poor, I wonder if he would have reacted differently if he knew a church community could exist that would support one another financially. Like in Acts 2 and Acts 4, we get a picture of the church pooling their resources, making sure every need is taken care of. And if that's the case, perhaps you can make financial sacrifices that you otherwise wouldn't feel able to do. Paul's saying to the Corinthians, we're, we're getting this money to meet this need in Jerusalem, but not just because we're picking favorites here or we don't want you to have this. When you give, you're giving inside of a narrative that might include you being on the recipient end of that giving in a few years. You've got the abundance now, and, and so you're sharing and meeting the need. And the good news is you can do that without fear because when that need comes your way, There'll be abundance from someone else, even perhaps from the person who you shared with, and they'll meet your needs. Let's skip to chapter 9, verse 6. The point is this, he says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. This is God's economy, according to Paul, for generosity. Paul's saying you cannot outgive God. You will never give a gift of finances or of time or service or skills that will be more than what God will give you. Now, this might not be in the short term. It might not even be financially. But he says, those who so much reap much. Each, he says, must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Here's what I could think Another reason why this tithe thing has to go out the window right here. Paul's using rhetorical devices, some pressure points. He's bragging about other churches to try to get the Corinthians to be ready for this gift. Here's a hint. He's not so confident all the times that they're going to be able to come through for this, which is why he gets two whole chapters of him really going from every angle. Let's do some scripture. Let's do some history. Let's do some just rhetoric. He's not super confident. And he could very easily point to, guess what, you have to, 10%. And it said, he, that's not a tool in his toolbox. He says, no, what you give has to be decided in your heart, and we can, we'll talk a little bit more about that individually next week. Not reluctantly, no external compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, one of the things I see people do here, which I think is incorrect, is they take cheerful giver and they use that as an easy excuse out of being generous, right? Like, when I give, it does not make me cheery. <laughs> Thus, I don't think I'm ready quite at this point in my life to be cheerful and to be a giver. This is also, I think, some of the false relief we get when you might hear something like a pastor saying, like, look, I'm not expecting you to tithe 10%. It could be that Jesus is calling you through his spirit and your discernment, to give 25% of your income. Jesus kind of jukes people out like this in the New Covenant sometimes. In the Sermon on the Mount, do you remember this? People are like, look, you've heard it said, don't murder people. And people are there like, yeah, we did and we haven't. And he goes, but I say, don't hate anybody. And they're like, oh, no, that's, no, you're raising the bar now. And there were rules given for divorce. And Jesus says, those rules were given to you 
because of the hardness of your heart. If something new is happening in your heart, if there's a new Holy Spirit, new things are possible. In, in Galatians, Paul will say that law, that external law, those rules, that 10%, that was given, he says, it was a tutor for you. It was like a babysitter. But now that Christ has come, more is possible. More can be organic. You can be changed from the inside out. And the way that, that Christian behavior often works is not how we would expect it necessarily. We often think this is the way that change in behavior happens. You change your belief, and then in a direct line, you change your behavior. So you've got to get the thoughts right, and then the behavior follows. This is often not how life works. You have the right thoughts, but the behavior doesn't follow. Anybody? Can anyone attest to that? I've got the thought, but it never ended up with the behavior. You've probably experienced this. Maybe you've never like, actually put words to this, but oftentimes life works the other way. You behave yourself into the right belief system. You walk into the right way of thinking or understanding. And a lot of Christian moral or ethical principles, I think, work this way. For me, the example that I've given is communion. The practice of weekly communion didn't make much sense to me, even though I could articulate like a theological argument, write an essay on it. But it was doing it as a new pastor at the church every week that after two or three years, all of a sudden I understood. It made sense to me. Right? I, I, like, I behaved my way into the right understanding. Does that make sense? So I think perhaps Paul's advice for you if when it comes to your attempts to be generous, you find yourself not being cheerful, is not to wait until you magically wake up one day and feel joyful about giving, because that's probably not going to come. But maybe you give your way into cheerfulness. I don't, I don't necessarily think that that's the opposite of what he's saying here. We do, though, though, what's God's desire? It's not for you to be unhappy about this. Whichever direction you have to take to get there, it's for joy to be there, for you to participate in this. And God is able, verse 8 of chapter 9, to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Look at the like, language that's used here. He's saying the guy who's giving you these gifts that you're called to share with others, he's got an infinite supply. You're never out giving him. He can make all the gifts abound to you, having all sufficiency in all things at all times that you can abound in every good work, which means there will never be an opportunity in front of you to meet a need, to supply, to serve that you will be unable to meet if you're living out of God's abundance out of a relationship with him. As is written, he is distributed freely, he's given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of the service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it's also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of the service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God. Thanks be to God for his inescapable gift. If giving for Christians is not conditioned on an external rule or law, 
What do we find it conditioned on? How is it described? What principles can we take? Three. The first is that giving in the New Testament seems to be need-based, need-oriented. It goes towards meeting a need. And so the Jerusalem church is in need, and so resources are being collected to meet that need. You could also say, in a similar vein, generosity is need-based, and it's also about justice. It's also about righting things that perhaps are wrong. Oftentimes, that's hand-in-hand if there's a need somewhere. There's some injustice that needs to be corrected, and you've been given the resources to be able to participate in that work of God. Even in the New Testament, we've read the passage about Paul talking about preachers and teachers getting paid, the administrative needs of ministry, of planning churches, of providing programs and support to people fall underneath this category. There is no, I think, universal one-size-fits-all, but there is a call to meet the needs of the church, to meet the needs of the injustices that you see around you, to meet the needs of the um, insufficiencies or the lack of abundance in people and families that you know and love and who are around you. And again, all of this happens inside of a community context, right? When you you do this as individuals, it, it starts to seem a lot harder and makes a little less sense. We, we meet the needs that we see as a community, not as individuals. And the beautiful thing in that story is that one day probably it'll be your needs being met. I mean, I'm not outing anyone in this room this morning except for myself. But I'll say that there have been needs that have been made aware in our fairly tight-knit community in which I've been able to help somebody out. And then equally, there have been needs in my own life and Lindsay and I's life that have been met, and, and it's definitely unbalanced in the direction of us receiving generosity, right? And many of you, I think, have stories like this. Many of you experience this in this very own church, in this community, not because there's some weird special thing about the building and not because we've got the thermometers on the stage, but because there's a community of people that say, I've been blessed to be a blessing. I can't outgive God. And if I see a need, I'm going to meet that need. And the great part about that is I'm also in that same group of people who are also looking for needs and also meeting needs. So I don't necessarily have to save up this huge safety net while you suffer and don't eat because I can help you knowing that my safety net is the community of God's people transformed by the generosity of their God. Generosity is needs-based. It's about meeting needs providing justice. Generosity is also about discipleship. It's not simply a rule that we follow or a command that we check off the list. It's a part of growing and maturing in our faith. This is the language he uses, as you excel in faith and in love and in knowledge and in speech, so also excel in this. One scholar said, you can tell a lot about a person's spiritual maturity by what they do with unexpected surplus money. The reason why it is appropriate to talk about finances as a church is because it does tell you something about where your heart's at. It does tell you something about where you are in your journey with God. And when you are generous, it produces maturity. It it walks you along the way. You You can really understand this 
if you think through just being generous with like your time or your service. We've got a kids ministry here at the church. Relative to the, our church's size, our kids ministry takes a lot of volunteers to run. And I can guarantee you it's not stocked by people who, since they're six years old, thought like I was meant to serve in a kids ministry. This is my gifting. This is my calling. And we have people in the room here, sort of elders and deacons, board chairs, kids ministry workers, some all at the same time for 12 years. And if it's working right, and it doesn't always, but if it's working right, serving, being generous, is not just a one-way street of pouring out. It's also getting poured into by the community, by God, by the Spirit. And so there's a way in which, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm serving in the kids' ministry, and maybe it's not even exactly my cup of tea, and yet still this is conforming me to Christ's image. I'm learning things about myself or being reminded of certain truths or I'm, I'm growing in patience or I'm learning more and building relationships with other people in my church family that's going to allow me to grow with them and meet their needs and, and pray with them and receive their help in new ways. Does this make sense? I mean, when we're, when we're generous, it's not just about meeting some condition. It's actually a productive step on the way towards maturity, which is why the joyfulness is a part of this. It's a, it's a good thing. The more you mature in Christ, the more you are experiencing the love of the Father that Christ has always experienced from eternity. The more you are conformed to the image of Christ, the more you are walking in the power and the abundance of the Holy Spirit which Jesus walked in his life and his ministry presented to us in the Gospels. The closer you are to Christ, we often think this is like constraining us and taking away our freedom. But from a Christian perspective, no, this is about true freedom. This is about true joy. To be generous and to grow in generosity then is to become more mature, to become more Christ-like. The one who, though he was rich, became poor. And thus to receive joy, spiritual blessings. Generosity is needs-based. Generosity is about discipleship. And then lastly, generosity is about worship in evangelism. It's about ministry. There's something that Paul gets at here where he says when, when the world sees the church operating in this way, it's going to bear witness to them. People will give thanksgiving to God for their eagerness to join in the relief of the saints. Not only will the actual activity help real human beings, will it help them eat, will it help churches be planted, gospels be preached, lives transformed, faith discovered, but it will also make a neon flashing sign to people outside of the church. And there'll be a day where they're looking around, wondering if there's any other option than the 24-hour news cable cycle that they're living in. And what a blessing if there's a community they can see, and that community's living a different type of way, and experiencing a different type of joy, and meeting needs sacrificially, unselfishly, living out generosity. Generosity is one way that we bear witness to the gospel. It's one way that we embody what God has done for us. And in that sense, not only does the generosity that we participate in usually contribute directly to ministry, it itself can become a form of ministry. As others see and give thanks to God, 
and can be attracted into the community. You can wonder what's going on there, what life is being found there that I might want to find. But as for the rich in this age, don't be haughty, don't be proud, set your hope on God, and then you do good. Be rich in good works. Be generous. Be ready to share.